in chat radio designed just for you good evening welcome to psychiatry today with dr scott this is your host psychiatrist dr scott bay with all the latest mental health related news including everything about the mind the brain human behavior how to feel well emotionally how to cope better with stress how to rid yourself of bad habits and how to make sense of media reports on the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for psychiatric illness, along the way better educating the general public about mental health issues and trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. Welcome back to the show. Appreciate your listening in. And as always, this show is pre-recorded. And uh, this show is to be aired first on January 28th, 2015. As we bring January to a close, reminds me that those of you who are sufferers of winter depression or seasonal affective disorder, take heart. If you're paying close attention, you can already tell that the sun is staying out enough uh, later in the evening to be observable to make a difference so it's uh, going to get later and later from here on out until spring so take heart well tonight's show we're going to start out with an initiative that is being taken up to prevent suicides in the UK in uh, England but oddly enough they are taking the lead from something that happened in the city of Detroit, here in the United States. And when I saw this, I said, wow, well, you know, the British are are taking notice of something Detroit did successfully, and they're trying to apply it across their whole country and throughout their NHS, their national health system. Why could we not here in the United States take the positive lead from the city of Detroit to put in place measures to reduce suicide rates, especially when you consider everything Detroit has gone through recently, what with incredible poverty and economy just spiraling downward so bad the city had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, If they could accomplish something like this, such that another major democracy took notice, uh, why wouldn't we be able to replicate that all over the United States? Well, we can ponder that, but in any case, let me go over with you what the Brits have done or are doing. Uh, The British government is calling for a complete overhaul of how their National Health Service tackles suicides. Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg says many suicides are preventable, couldn't agree more, and wants hospitals to aim to end all such deaths. Now, that's pretty ambitious, admirable, uh, unfortunately not likely to end all such deaths. But their approach, as I said, is based on a successful scheme in Detroit, Michigan, where the suicide rate among patients in uh, this scheme that they set up there fell by 75% within four years. Now, four years sounds like a long time, but 
to get the suicide rate down 75% in that time is actually incredible. Now, in the year 2013, more than 4,700 people killed themselves in England, uh, a rise of more than 6% in that country from 2012. And Mr. Clegg said suicide is preventable, it is not inevitable. And I heartily agree, and I strongly feel that we here in the States and in every nation should see suicide as a very serious health problem, a public health problem, and put aggressive measures in place to try to prevent it. He says we have to break this hidden assumption that nothing can be done to stop people killing themselves. Suicide is one of the biggest killers of men especially, and especially under the age of 50. And this is the important part of his point. He says, if this was a physical health problem, there would be a national outcry. And that's absolutely right. But I would go on to say that it is very much a physical health problem. Depression is a brain disorder. It is a physical problem. And suicide or death from depression or any other mental illness for that matter is the ultimate serious complication of that physical medical problem. The Deputy Prime Minister wants hospitals to adopt the approach pioneered by the Henry Ford Medical Group in Detroit, which in 2001 embarked on a wide-ranging program that included improved staff training, increased contact with patients, and better education for the families of people who were deemed to be at risk. Within four years, the suicide rate among Henry Ford's patient population had fallen by 75%. By 2008, they had stopped all suicides among patients of that medical group. Well, I think that's where uh, Mr. Clegg's very ambitious goal of ending all deaths within the National Health Service. Still, it's one thing to take one specific health system in one city and end suicides, which is an unbelievable success story. It's quite another thing to do that within a national health system, uh, much less one smaller uh, than that in, in the United States. Now, Inspired by what happened in Detroit, MerseyCare National Health Service Trust in Liverpool is now embarking on a similar strategy. So this is what it is going to do. It's going to create what's what they call a safe from suicide team, which is a 24-7 group of experts which rapidly and thoroughly assesses patients who are having suicidal thoughts improve the care of people who present with self-harm injuries at accident and emergency units, offering them therapies on the spot and, most importantly, following up with them when they go home. I think that's huge. I mean, there are so many times 
when someone makes a suicide attempt, whether it's cutting their wrist or taking an overdose or uh, what have you, um, and they're taken to an emergency room. And in many jurisdictions, there is a mandatory period of psychiatric hospitalization, but even that protocol isn't always followed. And even uh, very seldom is there actual follow-up after these people go home, whether it's directly home from the emergency room or whether it's uh, leaving the hospital. So it takes a lot of effort and resources, but making sure these patients get therapy offered to them right then and there and, furthermore, following up with them after, after they leave the medical facility goes a long way to preventing suicides. And then also part of it is improving data collection on patients to get a better understanding of how and where patients are most at risk of suicide and then targeting the resources at the most vulnerable population. And that's sort of, you know, as you go studying more about the patients at risk and using that data to refine your methods at decreasing that risk. Now, this uh, NHS Trust in Liverpool, uh, the medical director, believes that within 18 months, there will be a noticeable decrease in the number of patients who take their own lives. He says, when people have a very serious physical injury, like chest pains or strokes, hospitals put all that they can around them to make them better. I think this is a huge point. Uh, that was Dr. David Fernley, who's the medical director of Mercy Care NHS Trust in Liverpool. And I couldn't agree more with what he just said. Uh, heart disease, heart attacks, strokes. This has long been a very serious public health problem. And rightfully so, hospitals and hospital systems have paid very close attention to it and have put uh, a lot of protocols in place to decrease deaths from heart attack and stroke by putting together protocols that will be followed when someone goes to the hospital, uh, emergency room or other hospital or medical facility with symptoms indicating they may be having a heart attack or stroke. And what Dr. Fernley is saying, and again, I could not agree more, that when someone goes to a medical facility because they are feeling suicidal or they actually made an attempt on their life, there needs to be the same sort of aggressive treatment protocols to save that person's life, just as there is when they wind up at a facility with symptoms of a heart attack or a stroke. It needs to be taken that seriously and aggressive measures need to be taken instead of just saying, oh, well, this is a psychiatric patient. We'll put them off to the side. Uh, we'll let the family stay with them. We'll maybe have a social worker talk to them and see if they need to be admitted and they'll just sort of wait and languish 
in the emergency room until and unless either there is a psychiatric bed either in that facility or one close by that they get transferred to or they simply get discharged home with family without any follow-up, without any therapy right then and there. Uh, That needs to change and uh, I applaud uh, the Brits for paying closer attention to this and how wonderful that they're following the example of this health system in Detroit. All right, now, I think we'll stop here, take a commercial break, but I have much more on this issue, and then we're going to have other topics as well on tonight's show. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, with all the latest mental health news. And we're talking about a program being instituted in Great Britain to prevent suicide based on something that was done remarkably successfully well in a health system in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, The medical director of the system in Britain says, we think suicides deserve the same respect, the same intensity, 
the same innovative level of care. That's our ambition, and we think we can deliver that. Uh, he's talking about the same level of attention as heart attacks and strokes. And uh, I was talking right before the break about how I feel very strongly that should be the case. Uh, the chief executive of the Mercy Care NHS Trust in Liverpool says that one idea it was taking from the Detroit system, which was the Henry Ford Medical Group in Detroit, was the development of a safety plan for each individual. Everything about that individual, their risk, their tendencies, everything we know should be incorporated into that safety plan so that any professional that comes into contact with them can understand what uh, understand better what to do next. Again, I think if the level of attention and resources in that manner could be put into that type of individualized plan uh, for maintaining the safety of someone who's at risk for suicide, you know, that would go a tremendous way to prevention. I think it's a question of health systems just deciding that they're going to put that type of time and resources and attention into those patients' care. Uh, like the Henry Ford medical system did in Detroit, and now how uh, this health system in Liverpool is deciding to uh, follow the same protocols. Now, the article gives a particular case study as an example as to how this works. Uh, a woman had tried to kill herself on several occasions. She has complex mental health problems as a result of severe childhood trauma and she's 57 years old and she says I really wanted to take my own life so as not to hurt anyone anymore she's now glad she didn't after being helped to survive by her mental health team and her family she says they never gave up on me even when I'd given up on myself they've supported me when I've been unwell, I still have those thoughts, but I now know where to go. Now, what uh, the um, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Clegg, says, uh, a new ambition for the British National Health Service comes as mental health services are under increasing pressure with demand soaring, budgets falling, and patients regularly complaining about poor care. And unfortunately, we have the same problem here in the States, despite the fact that we have, uh, for the most part, private medical care, except for Medicare and Medicaid. And while not denying the stresses on the system, the Deputy Prime Minister insists that his goal of drastically reducing suicides is achievable. It absolutely is. If uh, this one health system in Detroit could do it, that could be replicated elsewhere. Again, it's just a question of making the decision to devote the resources. Marjorie Wallace, chief executive of the mental health charity SANE, said there was plenty to consider first. 
She says, any reduction in suicides pledged by the government will never be achieved until it is accepted that psychiatric hospital beds and units must be restored or replaced in that we do not rely on overstretched crisis teams. As we have been told, you can't keep someone on suicide watch in the community. Well, she has a good point there. And, you know, we've had a very big problem here in the United States in terms of uh, an intense shortage of psychiatric hospital beds. You know, we've gone from one end of the spectrum where there were many, many large psychiatric facilities where people were housed for weeks or months or decades back in the 1950s to that system slowly and surely eroding to where now psychiatric patients who need hospitalization languish in emergency rooms for hours or days because there are not enough hospital beds to accommodate them. Uh, So, you know, I think the first step is health systems saying, hey, suicide is a very serious health problem. We need to take it seriously the way we do heart attack and stroke. We need to put systems in place to identify patients at risk and take steps to reduce their risk. Very importantly, following up on what happens to them after they first show up at the health facility after either making an attempt on their life or feeling strongly that that's what they want to do. It's uh, the old adage, where there's a will, there's a way. It just takes the will to say, hey, this is a problem that we can fix and we're going to attack it. Uh, I would hope that this starts getting replicated at other health systems across the UK as well as here in the United States. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today, you know I often enjoy bringing you regular features on the show, uh, children's mental health updates, veterans and military mental health updates, and stress and the workplace updates. And that's what this next item is, a stress in the workplace update. And this is really a provocative one, in my opinion. Those of you who have a very hostile boss, definitely listen up to this next item. And those of you who know someone who is suffering under a hostile boss, get in touch with them and get them to listen in or to play back the podcast because you're going to want to hear this. If you do have a hostile boss, a new study finds advantages to giving it right back to your boss. That's right. In a result that surprised researchers, a new study found that employees who had hostile bosses were better off on several measures if they returned the hostility. The study found that employees felt less like victims when they retaliated against their bad bosses and as a result experienced less psychological distress, more job satisfaction, and more commitment to their employer. 
Now, the study was done at Ohio State University, and researchers said that before they did the study, they thought there would be no upside to employees who retaliated against their bosses, but that's not what they found. Now, the best situation is certainly when there is no hostility, but if your boss is hostile, there appears to be benefits to reciprocating in kind. Employees felt better about themselves because they didn't just sit back and take the abuse. Hostile bosses were the ones who did things like yell at, ridicule, and intimidate their workers. Employees who returned hostility did it by ignoring their boss, acting like they didn't know what their bosses were talking about, and giving just half-hearted effort. These are things that bosses don't like, and that fit the definition of hostility by doing something that the boss doesn't like, but certainly that is kind of a passive-aggressive form of hostility. You certainly don't expect to have too many employees yelling and screaming at their bosses. So, for those of you who are expecting me to say that that's what happened in the study, I hate to disappoint you, but no, uh, these were not people who were yelling back at their bosses or being uh, abusive or critical of their bosses uh, who were being abusive and critical to them. No, instead, they found more subtle ways of expressing their hostility, again, by ignoring them, acting like they didn't know what they were talking about, and then just giving them half-hearted effort. Well, personally, I, I've always thought that the best way to deal with a boss that was very hostile, very negative, very critical and demanding, and you know not showing any appreciation of effort uh, and often finding fault, if the boss is showing themselves to be unable to be pleased, you should stop trying so hard to do so. If it's the case that no matter how hard you work and no matter how good a job you do, it's not going to be good enough, it, it really would seem to me to be not worth it to try so hard to please someone who uh, is not able to be pleased. Now, this research was recently published online in the journal personnel psychology. It involved data from two related studies that the same researchers conducted. The first one included 169 people who completed two surveys by mail seven months apart. And in this survey, respondents completed a 15-item measure of supervisor hostility. It asked participants to rate how often their supervisors did things like ridiculing them and telling them that their thoughts and feelings are stupid. Yes, that does happen in the workplace, in case you find that shocking. The participants reported how often they retaliated by doing things like ignoring their supervisor. To me, that's the best strategy. Seven months later, the same respondents completed measures of job satisfaction, commitment to their employer, psychological distress, and negative feelings. Results showed that when bosses were hostile but employees didn't retaliate, 
workers had higher levels of psychological distress, less satisfaction with their jobs, and less commitment to their employer. Well, we're going to have to take another commercial break here. After we come back from that, we'll talk about what happened when employees did retaliate. And we'll have more mental health-related news as well. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Car- Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that dizziness may be a sign of heart disease, iron deficiency, high or low blood pressure, low blood sugar, or an inner ear infection? Dizziness can take the form of a spinning sensation, also known as vertigo, or a feeling of lightheadedness. The individual can also feel faint or have a rapid heartbeat. If you take high blood pressure medication, remember to take the medication daily as directed to control your blood pressure. Diabetics must remember to eat after taking their medication and to eat at regular intervals. If you have anemia, make sure to take a multivitamin that contains iron and to eat vegetables such as spinach. Dizziness after a cold or flu may be due to a virus. If you have dizziness, it is important to see your doctor for a complete physical examination. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host... Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio with all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we are talking about this week's Stress in the Workplace update, wherein a study found if you have a hostile boss, if you return that hostility in certain ways, you'll have better job satisfaction. So let's look at what happened when the researchers examined employees' who returned the hostility. Well, they didn't have the negative consequences that the employers, employees who did not return the hostility had. If you recall, the employees who didn't retaliate in some way had more psychological distress, less job satisfaction, less commitment to their employer. Not so those who returned or retaliated against the hostility in some way. But that left unanswered questions of why employees felt better if they returned their boss's hostility and whether retaliation hurt their careers. So the researchers conducted a second study which involved an online survey of 371 people from across the country who were surveyed three times each three weeks apart. The first survey asked respondents many of the same questions as the first study, 
The second survey asked questions designed to test if the employees felt like a victim in their relationship with their boss. In addition to other questions, the third survey asked employees about career outcomes, such as whether they had been promoted and whether they were meeting their income goals. Results showed that employees who turned the hostility back on their bosses were less likely to identify themselves as victims. Makes sense. And they were then less likely to report psychological distress, and more likely to be satisfied with and committed to their jobs. Well, really, <clears throat> I think the findings are not so surprising. Anyone who is dealing with someone who is abusive is not going to feel like as much of a victim, and is not going to experience as much distress. If they somehow or another fight back, I mean, this is really no different than boiling it down to dealing with the schoolyard bully. That's pretty much all it is. Now, of course, fighting against your boss may seem like a risky career move, right? I'm sure that's what a lot of you listening to this have been thinking. But in the second study, they wanted to see. If employees who retaliated against their bosses also reported that their career was damaged by their actions, in that survey anyway, the one that these researchers did anyway, employees didn't believe that actions hurt their career. So how can returning hostility not only help employees avoid psychological distress? But also allow them to remain committed to their employer, and be more satisfied with their jobs. Although this study didn't examine that issue directly, employees who fight back may have the admiration and respect of coworkers. There is a norm of reciprocity in our society. We have respect for someone who fights back. Who doesn't just sit back and take abuse? Having the respect of coworkers may help employees feel more committed to their organization and happy about their job. The message from these findings shouldn't be that employees should automatically retaliate against a horrible boss. The real answer is to get rid of hostile bosses. And there may be other responses to hostile bosses that may be more beneficial. In the suggestion would be to find other coping strategies. But in the meantime, anyway, just something to think about. If you're dealing with a hostile boss, of course,、uh, no one who answered the survey was openly hostile in return. But if、uh, you respond to The boss's hostility by ignoring them, acting like they didn't know what they were talking about, or just not overextending yourself—guess what? It will help reduce your psychological distress and improve your job satisfaction. Other than trying in vain to work harder to please someone who is not going to be pleased with your effort, no matter what. All right, so there you have it. 
Very interesting stress in the workplace update indeed. Next up on tonight's show, um, I have always told my patients that having alcohol before bedtime will disrupt their sleep. I'm sure I have mentioned that on this show over the years many, many different times. So I found this article about a study that documented just that. It's not as if this wasn't already a documented phenomenon, but a new look was taken at it, so uh, I thought I would discuss that with you. But pre-sleep drinking disrupts your sleep. For individuals who drink before sleeping, alcohol initially acts as a sedative, but is later associated with sleep disruption. A study of the effects of alcohol on sleep in college students has found that pre-sleep drinking causes disturbed sleep. The results are due to be published in the February 2015 online-only issue of the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research. They are currently available at Early View. People tend to focus on the commonly reported sedative properties of alcohol, which is reflected in shorter times to fall asleep, particularly in adults, rather than the sleep disruption that occurs later in the night. Researchers studied 24 participants, equally divided among 12 women and 12 men. These were healthy 18 to 21-year-old social drinkers who had consumed less than seven standard drinks per week during the previous 30 days. And, you know, they then found that... uh, just any pre-sleep drinking disrupted sleep. Now, if sleep is being disrupted regularly by pre-sleep alcohol consumption, and that this takes place over long periods of time, it could have significant detrimental effects on daytime well-being and also on cognitive function, such as learning and memory processes. Further evidence from the study that alcohol is not a sleep aid. The take-home message here is that alcohol is not actually a particularly good sleep aid, even though it may seem like it helps you get to sleep quicker. In fact, the quality of the sleep you get is significantly altered and disrupted. The evidence they found to support this was measuring the sleep EEG, EEG stands for electroencephalogram, it's a measure of brain waves. We all have a very specific pattern of brain waves when we're awake and a very different distinct pattern when we're asleep. And what this study found, and again, which has been demonstrated in the past, is that under the influence of any alcohol, the sleep EEG does not appear normal and it indicates that sleep is light, restless, easily interrupted, and not restorative. So there you go, uh, more definitive evidence that if you're having trouble sleeping and you feel like you need something to help you fall asleep, uh, alcohol is not the way to go if you want to not just fall asleep quickly, but have restful sleep 
during the night and wake up feeling good. You're better off using some sleepy time tea than you are uh, a good stiff belt of liquor or even wine or beer. All right. Well, this next article, I have to admit, was a little bit out there, but it was uh, something I was tempted to talk to you about anyway, so bear with me. It's called, What If We Didn't Need Sleep? If you've ever pulled an all-nighter, you know you're not yourself the next day, and perhaps you've even lamented the need for eight hours of shut-eye. After all, wow, how much could you accomplish uh, if you didn't spend all that time sleeping? So what if there were a cure for sleep, as it were? What if there were a drug you could take so you never felt tired? After all, researchers are working on drugs to prevent sleepiness. A 2000 study found that a nasal spray containing the hormone orexin A reversed the effects of sleep deprivation in monkeys. And there are already medications on the market to alleviate sleepiness. Things like New Vigil and its earlier version ProVigil and other medications used to treat narcolepsy are examples. Even so, experts say sleep plays a fundamental role in how people structure their lives and taking it away would have a large sociological impact. This, of course, ignores the obvious. So if there were such a drug that you didn't need sleep, wouldn't you just become exhausted and wouldn't the body wear down and wear out eventually? But people don't realize what a reciprocal relationship we have with sleep. Sleep really structures our lives, and we also structure our sleep around our social world. Here are some human lives, some ways rather, that human lives might be different if there were a so-called cure for sleep. Would we be more productive? Many people think they would be more productive if only they had more time. So, in a world without sleep, in which people had eight more hours in a day, it's tempting to suggest they'd get more done. Society would solve more problems. But experts say most people would not make the best use of this extra time. It's seductive to think we'd all become smarter and more productive, but that's not necessarily the case. All right, we're going to take a commercial break here. And when we come back from that, we'll talk about why that wouldn't necessarily help. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. 
During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay with all your mental health-related news. Now, this is an article about what would happen if we didn't sleep or didn't need to sleep. Now, uh, we wouldn't necessarily be more productive. That was the point uh, we were going over just before the break. The human brain requires a certain amount of downtime to function optimally, and too much work or stress impairs thinking. That's why people may come up with their best ideas in the shower or in the middle of a seemingly mindless pastime, because your mind is drifting, it's, uh, it's not preoccupied with things, and it's allowed to work creatively. This is why a lot of people, a lot of experts think daydreaming is adaptive. Most people are not more productive if they have more time anyway, uh, even if they didn't have the time that they spend sleeping just doing that. When people have extra time, they tend to fill it in with relaxation or just pass the time away. We're not machines, so we couldn't simply keep working 24-7. Now, people who are compulsive workers might do more at first if they didn't have to sleep, but eventually the work would take its toll because we just need to refresh ourselves. Rather than being more productive, people might just be busier. See, they're not necessarily the same thing. Technological advances over the last few decades have allowed work to take place around the clock. But people who work late or at odd hours aren't necessarily more productive than in the past. They're just busier. Sleep puts a pause on our busyness and our productivity. Without sleep, we would likely spiral into busier and busier patterns. What about changes in work schedules if there were no sleep? Expectations around work might change as well. Without a need for sleep, your boss might be justified in wondering why you didn't reply to an email at 3 a.m., which happens now anyway, even though there is such a thing as eight hours of sleep, supposedly. Taking away sleep 
shifts expectations of how long people can work without a break. Now, people who worked day as well as night shifts, such as doctors, nurses, police officers, will be concerned about this type of idea. There is concern about exploitation, employers putting pressure on their employees to work longer hours and do more shifts in the name of economic productivity, where socially and health-wise, workers would lose out. Society would also need more staff and service professions, such as police officers and firefighters. Even though there are night shift workers now, society would need more because people would be more active at night. And then what about relationship issues? A cure for sleep would also likely affect relationships. Although people like to spend time with loved ones, too much time with their kids or a significant other could have a downside. If everyone's awake and active, when do you get downtime? When do you get a break from your intimates? People get a little worn out if they don't have time away from their loved ones, something that sleep usually brings. On the other hand, some people might lose out on interactions with their family if routines that are built around sleep, like reading to kids before bed, disappear. We might lose things like meal times and family and routines around bedtime. Although the elimination of sleep would provide more opportunity to make money, it would also offer more opportunities to spend money. So the potential economic impact of doing away with sleep is not obvious. For instance, people would need to heat their homes 24 hours a day and eat more meals. A world without sleep would need more resources to keep it running. There's also a question of what would happen to the sleep industry. Americans spend $5 billion a year on sleeping aids. We have all these ways in which we basically have formed a private economy around sleep that would disappear. Of course, beds and everything that we put on and around them, you name it. Now, of course, the health implications. Foregoing sleep certainly might also have health implications. Sleep problems have been linked with a number of health conditions, notably obesity and heart disease. The article doesn't mention it, but of course, depression. Even if there were a drug that allowed people to function without sleep, that would not necessarily take away the risk of these other health conditions linked with a lack of sleep. In addition, there would be more opportunities to eat, which could lead to increases in obesity. While there theoretically also would be more time to get to the gym, humans tend to gravitate toward things that bring pleasure and not so much that entail a lot of hard work and sweat. Why do you think New Year's resolutions burn out 
by this time of year. Even when people really do have the time to make healthy choices, a lot of times most of us don't. And it's already been found that there's a direct link between lack of sleep and obesity if for no other reason the longer you stay awake the more likely it is you're going to get an appetite again and you're going to eat more food. Now sleep is also very important for memory consolidation so even if people don't feel tired a lack of sleep can affect their brains it's unclear what the long-term consequences of taking drugs to stay awake might be. Now, what this article doesn't mention, but uh, I'll bring in here, is just very recent research in the last several years or so uh, in which scientists think that one of the things that's happening during sleep is the brain has its own unique way of clearing waste products out of its circulation uh, unlike the rest of the body where some of this is done by the lymphatic system they're calling it in the brain the glymphatic system after the glial cells that support brain cells and help uh, take care of them so really that's a crucial function uh, getting rid of waste products during sleep including some of the chemicals that form the plaques in Alzheimer's disease. So while an interesting idea, not very good practical implications, uh, whether that's economically or social relationships, and certainly, certainly not physically practical. Well, this next item is for all of those of you who have forgotten something just seconds after you saw it. Take heart. No need to worry that you're losing your mind. No need to invoke the dreaded A word. It's happened to all of us. You see something, then just moments later you've completely forgotten what it is you saw. According to a new study, it's called attribute amnesia, the phenomenon of difficulty remembering something when there's no expectation to have to remember it later on. In other words, it's evidence that memory may be way more selective then realized. For the study published in the journal Psychological Science, researchers divvied 100 students into groups. Each group participated in an experiment in which they had saw four characters arranged in a square, and they were asked to remember in which corner a specific character was. The characters would disappear, and the participants had to remember where it was. Now, this wasn't a hard task, they got it right most of the time, but then they asked the participants a question they were not told they would be asked. And then, in that case, the success rate was much, much lower. The information they asked them about in this second surprise question was important. They had just asked them to use it. It wasn't irrelevant to the test they were given, but they were not previously warned that they'd have to provide that information. So when a specific piece of information is attended to, that information is also stored in memory and participants should have done better on the surprise memory test. Now, when the researchers asked this surprise question again in the next round, 
after the participants already had an idea that they might need to provide that information, the rate of correct answers went up markedly from only 65% to 95%. So the researchers pointed out that was because the participants were likely expecting to be asked the question and so made it a point to remember that particular information. Now, while all this may seem on the surface like an evidence of a flaw in human memory, in fact, the researchers point out it may actually be a good thing in that the brain is not holding on to information it does not deem important. In other words, <clears throat> mostly outside of our awareness, when we're presented with some information or we're seeing or hearing or reading something, if we think it's going to be important or relevant and we might need to know it at some future point, then we are much, much more likely to try to store it into memory so that we can retrieve it later on. If, on the other hand, we do not think it is important, we do not assign any value to that information, we do not think we will be called upon to provide that information at any point in the future, it, it's not as if it's quickly forgotten. I think that's a, sort of a mischaracterization. It's really more like it was never registered into memory in the first place. So in that sense, it's not really forgotten if it was never remembered in the first place. That is to say, if it's not registered into memory, it can't be retrieved. Well, in any case, hope that helps you feel better. It's only if something's very important or relevant that we're going to remember it. And let me wrap up tonight's show and hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we meet again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.